If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope that you do, take them out and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. And of course, we know it's Christmas time, and, and Christmas time is, is that time of year when, uh, when we get caught up into a lot of things. Uh, many of you have already attended plenty of Christmas parties, and you've got more that you've got to go to. And uh, they are come, uh, the schedule at this time of year comes fast and furious for a lot of us. And what typically happens is, is that we can become so busy at Christmas from all the shopping, from everything that we have to do, that we, we tend to lose sight of what's most important. And that, that can happen very quickly. It can happen, it can happen to any and to all of us. And sometimes we get so busy that that, that that contemplation of what Christmas is is an event that we want to get to that we don't actually take time to really allow the Christmas season to, to place upon us that, that sense of expectancy and that sense of, of, of anticipation that it's designed to do. And so consequently this year, what I'm hoping to accomplish through this series of sermons that we began last week through looking at Christmas from the viewpoint and the lens of the Old Testament, what I hope will happen is that it will force us to kind of regain some of that expectancy and maybe regain some of that anticipation that comes from what should happen during the Christmas season. I've entitled this series of sermons, An Old Testament Christmas, and, and, and what I hope is that we will reclaim those things that we sometimes seem to lose in all of our busyness. Last week, in Genesis chapter 3, if you were with us, you'll recall that we learned that, that Genesis 3 passage was what I determined and what I named to be the first Christmas message. And in that passage, what we learned was that there was a prediction embedded within it of the coming Messiah. And the truth and the real thrust of that passage was that there's hope. There's hope of, of redemption. There's hope of reconciliation, not only of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who, who had lost all semblance of hope because of the fact that they had sinned against God and they had disobeyed Him. But it, in that passage, we also get the sense of hope for us who too have sinned against God and disobeyed Him and have lost all hope were it not for God doing something for us. And so in that passage in Genesis 3, the Bible really tells us of the coming of the Messiah and how that brings about hope. To you and I. Well, this morning in our passage from Isaiah 40, I want us to look at another passage that predicts the coming of the Messiah. But in it, there is also the, the infusion of hope into this passage, but it brings a measure of comfort to us as well. And so we move not just in hope, but we also move into the idea of what comfort comes from Christmas. In fact, what we're going to understand is that the prophet Isaiah actually encourages us to get into our comfort zone. Now, that may sound a little weird because in our vernacular today, we like to talk about getting out of your comfort zone. We like to talk about the fact that we need to try something new. We need to go to a new restaurant and try a new kind of food. Get out of your comfort zone. We need to talk about, you know, you need to get up off the couch and do something. You need to quit being lazy. Get out of your comfort zone. That's a lot of times how we talk about comfort zone. But here, Isaiah is actually telling us to do the opposite. He's telling us that we need to get into a comfort zone, but a real comfort zone. A comfort zone that comes from anticipating the coming of Christ and from knowing Him in His fullness. Now, as I begin, before I begin to read the passage to you, I want to set the stage for the words that we're going to read this morning from Isaiah 40. These are, are prophetic words from the pen of Isaiah who, who writes to a people who would, who would live after him to a people who would be taken into captivity, to the children of Israel who were conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, and dragged off into Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. 
And at the time of their captivity, what we need to know is that their Judean homeland lay in complete ruins. When the Babylonians had come through, they had leveled the entire land. They had taken the temple that Solomon had built, that grand and glorious temple, and had burned it to the ground. And now the people of Israel had been dragged away into bondage, into slavery. They were household servants and slaves to the Babylonian people. What that means is that Isaiah's message that he writes here in Isaiah 40 was written to a group of people who were as far from comfortable as you can possibly imagine. In fact, we would say not that they were uncomfortable, we would say they were discomforted. To be discomforted means that they were, they were suffering. They were, they were in distress. They were experiencing pain and sadness and misery. People who were brokenhearted. People who were troubled beyond belief. That's what it means to be discomforted. No doubt there are some of you in this room this morning who can identify with that. You might even say, I'm one of those who is discomforted. I know what it feels like because I've got a broken heart. I know what it feels like this morning because, because I'm distressed, I'm saddened, I'm in pain, I'm suffering. And the truth be known this morning, you, just like this group that Isaiah writes to, could use some comfort. You could use some words of encouragement today. What I want you to know is that the words that Isaiah writes to this group of exilic Israelites in a foreign land being oppressed by a Babylonian king, the words that he writes to them are just as true for you today as they were for them. So with that as an introduction this morning, let's hear the word of our God this morning as it comes through the pen of the prophet Isaiah where he speaks to us today and tells us this, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice and strength. Lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arms shall rule for, the, for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those 
who are with young. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you might bring comfort to our hearts this morning through the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. And we celebrate it, particularly at this time of Christmas. I pray that you would help us to refocus our attention, not on the things that the world tells us is important, but on the things that your word speaks to us that is important. This I pray in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Now, as you can imagine, to a bunch of displaced Jews who were now slaves to the Babylonians, this message of comfort would have been welcome news. As I mentioned earlier, the comfort that comes from Isaiah's message is based upon a word of hope that is infused into the text. Hope that would have created much excitement. It would have created much anticipation. The passage itself is interesting because it's broken down into really four different voices that speak from inside the text. And those voices, when they speak, they speak comfort. Comfort that those needy people of Israel truly were in need of. And it assures those folks that they will be brought back to the land that God had given them. And this morning, I want to look at all four of those voices that we see that come there in this passage. And, and then I want us to synthesize their message. They give us an independent message, and I want us to synthesize those messages together at the end. But to begin with this morning, let's look at, back at the first voice there that we find in verses 1 and 2. Because there we read this from the pen of Isaiah. He says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. Now, for us to understand the real impact of these two verses on the children of Israel, we have to understand Israel's history. We have to understand that they were in captivity at this moment because of their own sin. They were there because they had driven, God had driven them into exile. He had done that because they had been guilty of worshiping false gods. They had been guilty of dealing unjustly with one another. They had engaged in persistent immorality. And they had treated God's messengers with disdain and with contempt and with hostility. And so accordingly, God had punished the children of Israel for their sins. He allowed other nations to conquer them. Particularly here, we recognize that the Babylonians had been sent to conquer them and bring them into captivity. But here in these first two verses of, of Isaiah 40, what we recognize is that in spite of all of that, there was still hope. God still loved his people. He still cared for them. He had not turned his back on them and forsaken them completely. He wanted them to know that they would not remain in captivity forever. Consequently, God sends the, the prophet Isaiah to actually tell them to be comforted. And Isaiah's message of comfort was that their warfare, their severe trial was over. He, he, he tells them that their punishment had reached its, its conclusion. And now they could experience pardon for their iniquities. In other words, their, their comfort lay in the hope that God would forgive them of their sins. Now, I want you to consider what good news that would be. Consider the hope that, that this would have brought. Comfort was what they'd been longing for. They had been discomforted. And now comfort was coming to them, but it was coming by way of pardon from their sins. You see, though it had been dark, 
Though in some ways it was still dark. What this text tells them is that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it is coming by way of what something that would happen on their behalf. Some of you need to hear that news today. You need to hear the words of comfort that comes through the news of pardon. You need to hear that you have been set free. You need to hear that your bondage to sin has been lifted. This is where the ancient writings here of Isaiah actually find their significance for you and me. Because you see, the, the voice of pardon that we read here, that the sins of the Israelites had been forgiven, the basis of their forgiveness was something that would happen years later in their life, but it was based upon the same event that mine and your pardon exists on as well. Something that has happened in our past. It happens on the one event that took place on Calvary's Hill where Jesus Christ was stretched out on a cross and where he died for the sins of sinners like you and me and sins of sinners like those Israelites. One writer has put it this way. He says, though the cross is an event in history, it transcends history. It is an eternal event. And what that means is just simply this. It reaches its significance for all humanity across all time and across all over the globe. Christ died to save sinners just like you and just like me. And friend, I want you to know not only was that good news for the ancient Israelites, it's good news for us as well. And so the first voice of comfort that we hear from this passage is the first point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. And it's this. The first voice of comfort announces salvation to those whose sins are pardoned through Christ. Let me ask you this morning, have your sins been pardoned through Christ? Whether you realize it or not, that is the greatest need that you have. Your financial struggles, your relationship struggles, your, your pain physical or emotional, the suffering that you're going through, all of that may be overwhelming, but the greatest need that you have is the need to have your sins pardoned by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. In fact, the meaning of Christmas is that Jesus Christ was born so that he might die in order to save sinners just like you and just like me. And friend, the first voice of comfort from our text this morning reminds us of that. It announces to us that salvation only comes to those who have been pardoned from their sins through what Jesus Christ has done. But what I want you to know is there's a second voice here, another voice of comfort, because this message is not complete. Verse 3 speaks once more of those exiled Israelites, and, and in here we hear another voice of comfort. And he says, he tells them to build a highway in the desert. In fact, what he actually says is prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, some commentators have talked about the fact, well, what he's talking about here is, is that he's describing the path that the Israelites are going to take when they leave Babylonian bondage and travel back to Judea, back to their homeland, and that God is going to lead them as they make straight a path in the desert. Some say that that's the way that we ought to interpret this verse. Others say, no, really it's a reference to the Judean homeland itself, a land that had become decimated after the war and after the Babylonians had come through and ransacked it. And that was largely depopulated. And much of the, the, the land that would had grown great grapes and figs and all of that was now overgrown by brush. And it was a, a land that had become a wasteland. 
In either case, whichever way you look at that, those verses, what you come away from, though, is, is understanding that there was a message of hope embedded in what God tells his people. What it meant just simply in general terms was that they would no longer, those Israelites would no longer be captives. They would no longer be slaves to the Babylonians, but they would one day go back and inhabit the land that God had given them. And one day that land would flourish again as it had in previous centuries. The real question of this text, though, to me is, what does it mean when it says make straight or or to straighten the crooked places? What does it mean to, to make smooth the rough places? How are we to interpret what Isaiah says there? Well, I think the best way for us to interpret it is to hear that similar language being used in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, we find out that there was a voice of one who called in the wilderness. And when he did so, we recognize that that person's name was John the Baptist. And in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. As in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark chapter 1, verse 4, we, we read that, that John the Baptist came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So, so clearly what we understand is that John the Baptist came preaching a message of repentance and that the New Testament writers equated him to this voice of one that was crying in the wilderness there in Isaiah 40. And so what we begin to understand is that making the path straight, smoothing the rough places, straightening out the crooked paths is really a, a call to repentance on our part. John the Baptist's message was repentance. Isaiah's message is that of repentance as well. So the real question then is, what is repentance? What does it mean to repent? Well, in its most literal sense, to repent means to turn from something. It means to turn away from our reliance on ourselves. It means to turn away from our reliance on, on stuff that we like to make satisfy us. To turn, to repent means to turn away from, from sin and from selfishness. And it means to turn to it means to turn to the only one who can truly satisfy us. It means to turn away from the sin and the selfishness and to turn toward a life of holiness and humility. One writer has put it this way. He says, there is a condition for being comforted by the Lord. Listen to the condition. It is wanting to be comforted by the Lord. That's what repentance is all about. Repentance means you stop seeking comfort elsewhere. It means that you leave everything else behind and you seek comfort in the Lord and in Him alone. It means that you face your sins squarely and you stop making excuses and instead you confess it. This writer goes on and says this. He says, this does something in your heart. This is how you clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. This is how you make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. This is how you build a highway to your heart for God. And when you do that, he writes, God responds by showing his glory. And that leads to the second voice of comfort that I want you to see this morning on your outline. That second voice of comfort announces this. It cries out for repentance so that God's glory may be revealed. This would have been understood in a really significant way by those Israelites in Babylonian captivity because you remember the place where God's glory was most clearly revealed to them was in the temple that Solomon had built. But as I reminded you earlier, that temple lay in ruins. 
And so for them, their idea was that we have to go back and rebuild that temple, which of course we recognize from, from Nehemiah and from other places that that's exactly what happened. But we never read in the Old Testament where the God's glory cloud ever rested on that second temple as it had the first. So does that mean that Isaiah's prophecy was null and void? Absolutely not. You see, the prophecy here in Isaiah 40 actually points to the coming of one in whom all the fullness of deity and glory would dwell. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, the first chapter, verse 14, I read it for you last week. I'll quote it for you again. It's liable to come up again next week, too. It's Christmas time. John 1:14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Do you understand what that means then? That the glory of God is truly revealed not in a building, but in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ who has come and revealed God to us. Jesus Christ has revealed the full glory of God to mankind. And brothers and sisters, that is the beauty of Christmas. Christmas has come. Our Savior has come. Our Messiah has come. And He's revealed His glory to us. And that same voice of comfort that cried out to those exilic Israelites cries out to you and I, too, to prepare our hearts. You, you recall the line in that very famous Christmas song that we love to sing, Let every heart prepare Him room. How do we prepare Him room? We prepare Him room through repenting of our sins, allowing God's glory to be revealed in and through our lives. That's the second voice of, of comfort in this passage. There is a third one. We read about it in verse 6. Verse 6, we read of this command to cry out. And then we have a question that is responded back. And he says, well, what am I supposed to cry out? And then we get the answer there in the last part of verse 6. says, cry out that all flesh is like grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Time out, Pastor. I thought you said this was supposed to be a message about comfort. Exactly how does one gain comfort from being compared to grass and flowers that the Lord blows His breath across and then they wither and then they fade? I don't know where you come from, but that doesn't sound very comforting to me. But imagine that you were one of those Israelites in Babylonian bondage. Imagine that you were enslaved to a world power that was so strong there was no possibility that you could ever win. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army was like. But Isaiah says all it takes is one little puff from the mouth of God and every earthly power will be blown away. In other words... What this actually tells us is as opposed to being negative and making it about us, we actually turn it around and realize just what it's saying about God. What it says about God is that He's bigger and He's stronger and He's mightier than any earthly ruler ever has been or ever will be. And what it tells us is that a, a fight between God and any earthly ruler is not even a contest to begin with. All He has to do is blow from His mouth 
and the grass withers and the flowers fade. What that means for us is, is that our confidence is not to be in earthly powers. Our confidence is not to be in ourselves. Our confidence is to be in the sovereign God who is mighty and who can take care of anything and everything that comes against his people. To hammer this point home, Notice that he repeats himself again there in verse 7. He says, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. And then he switches things. At the end of verse 8, he switches things. He says, but the word of our God stands forever. You see how he puts those things in, in contradistinction to one another? He, here he's contrasting the idea of, of, of humanity and the nations which pass away when he blows his breath upon them and he contrasts that with his word that he gives to us, the very spoken word that comes by his breath that he says will never, ever, ever pass away. The word of God stands forever. Understanding that, then we can recognize just how important that was to these Jews. His word there was that one day they would be freed. One day they would be taken back to their homeland. One day they would have the land restored to them. And therefore, when we notice that, we recognize that his promises are always sure. And that leads us to the third voice of comfort in this text this morning. And what it tells us is, is the third voice of comfort cries out for confidence in God's sovereignty and in his sure word. Friend, I want you to know that same voice of comfort cries out to you this morning. Maybe the main thing in your mind right now are the battles that you're facing. Maybe it's the intense struggles that you're up against. In fact, you may feel in some ways is that you are in a captivity that is as deep and as strong as any Israelite was in Babylon. If that's the case, I want you to know that the voice of comfort assures you that God is sovereign. He assures you that the things that you are facing right now are nothing but withering grass and fading flowers to him. He blows across those things in his perfect timing and they wilt and they wither away. Furthermore, you can take comfort in the fact of what, what we read in the New Testament in Mark's gospel, chapter 13, verse 31, which says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away, Jesus said. Friends, everything in this life is transitory. Everything and everyone will fade. But God's word remains forever. And it has promised us that any heart that will glorify him by opening itself up to him through repentance and through faith, that he will raise it up on the last day. This is a message of comfort you and I can count on. It is a promise that is true. And what some of you need to hear today is that your circumstances that you are facing at the moment are only that. They're momentary. Be they good or be they bad. Everything may be great in your life right now. I'm not here to be the bearer of bad news except that I'm going to be the bearer of bad news. They won't always stay great. The same is true for the bad things that you're going through and the difficulties that you're facing right now. You won't always be in the dark that you're in there at the moment. Everything in this life is transitory. God's word will stand forever. 
So don't get too high based upon your circumstances and don't get too low based upon your circumstances, but stand firm on the Word of God, which promises you that He will never leave you, He will never forsake you, He will never abandon you. That's the third voice. Now we come to the fourth. Verses 9 through 11, we get this image of the nation of Israel coming out of the valley. They go up to the mountaintop and they announce. In fact, the, the, the voices here, they tell them to herald the good news. Tells them to bring good tidings, to announce to the world. Well, what are they to announce? Well, they are announcing to the world that God is going to act on their behalf to defeat the Babylonians and to bring them back to their homeland. And then in verses 10 and 11, we get the picture of how God's going to do it. In verse 10, notice, notice we get this picture of a warrior who's coming to fight for his people. He says, behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. When you read the Hebrew there, you get these words that are just rich with this, this strength and this power and this warrior and this mighty one who is going to come and break the bonds of those who have been shackled. Then you get to verse 10, verse 11. And the same God that was just described that way in verse 10 is described this way in verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. You, you kind of get the picture, you know, when I, when I went and grabbed Lydia May earlier, you know, I, I wanted to, to get her and kind of cradle her in my arms and make her feel safe. There's I cradled her on my, on my left arm and put my right hand around her so that she'd feel comforted. That's exactly just how God is described and what he does with his sheep. He gets them in his arms. This same one that showed the muscle and the power and the strength in verse 10 is the one who cradles his children in his arms in verse 11. Imagine, if you can, the comfort that that would bring people who were enslaved to these pagan, idol-worshiping Babylonians, that there would be a God who would come and take them out of that, but would also lovingly caress them in His arms. That brings us to the fourth voice. The fourth voice that this text points us to is this. The fourth, fourth voice of comfort proclaims that God is both tough, but He's also tender. Friends, understand this. When Jesus Christ came, he came to die a horrible, horrible death. But he died that horrible death and endured that torture and endured that pain so that people like you and I who were enslaved to sin might have our enemy defeated. Our enemy of sin and death and the devil were destroyed on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he came with that strong arm to deliver us from the valley of the shadow of death. So that one day, one day he might come and gather us back to him with the tender arms of a shepherd. Because he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I'm going to bring you home to me. Friends, understand this. You need to be reminded of that truth this morning. 
Such a reminder should tell us that we need to expectantly look toward Christmas because it reminds us of the fact that a Savior has come to bring us from the bondage that we would find ourselves in forever were it not for Him. And the message of Christmas is that Jesus Christ was born to die and He died to defeat our enemy and to deliver us and to bring us home. That is our hope and our comfort for Christmas. And then that then, then leads me to my sermon in a sentence. And my sermon in a sentence this morning is simply this. Christmas brings the comfort that we can have forgiveness of our sins, the hope of glory, confidence in God's promises and power, and the assurance that the same Christ who fights for us will also carry us home. Now, you may be saying to yourself, that ain't exactly the Christmas message I was anticipating today. And that's okay. But let me ask you, aren't those the things that reach down to the deepest points of who we are and answer the deepest questions and longings that our heart has? See, friends, without Christmas, without Christ, we would forever be captives. We would forever be slaves. But because of Christmas... We can have hope, and that hope comforts us. So let me encourage you this morning, just as Isaiah has, to get into your comfort zone this Christmas, the real comfort zone. Not a lazy, apathetic, lethargic comfort zone, but rather a comfort zone that is built upon the real hope for Christmas. Trust in Christ. Believe on Him. Let your faith grow in the knowledge of who He is and what He has promised. And know that Christmas means that Christ has promised to bring His people home to Him where He is. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.